Aloha. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation. It is Monday, December 4th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Big news over the weekend from Hawaiian and Alaska Airlines. Will regulators give the nod to a merger in the future? We talk about missing kapuna and efforts to help our aging community deal with dementia. Are we doing enough to help affected families? And missing children, we highlight cases that normally don't get a lot of attention. Child custody cases, are there better outcomes for families? We learn about the history of Hawaii's Missing Children Center. And big news out of Makua Valley, the U.S. Army tells the court it has no plans for live fire training at its military reservation. The community hails this as a first step in healing. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Quite the bombshell dropped this weekend with the announcement of a possible merger between Alaska and Hawaiian Airlines. H. Bears Bill Dorman joins us in studio. As the news rippled across the community, it's been a little more than, what, 24 hours, I think. Yeah, this really was. Talk about a uh, Sunday surprise. The basic points of the deal, familiar by now. You heard them at the top of the hour. Alaska Airlines buying Hawaiian Airlines or wanting to do so. Uh, $18 a share. That makes it a $1.9 billion acquisition. Alaska Airlines CEO Ben Minacucci went through some of the other numbers at a news conference yesterday, but he also took time to talk about the importance of culture in this deal. Our combined entity will have more than $13 billion in annual revenue, 365 aircraft, 1,400 flights a day, and serve 138 destinations, including 29 international and over 1,200 destinations globally through our One World Alliance. The combined airline will be powered by some 31,000 employees here in Hawaii, the state of Alaska, throughout the West Coast, and other locations throughout the world. The one thing we do know from experience is the success and failure of transactions such as this depends on a lot of factors. But one of the most important and elusive is culture. The cultural element is so important that we decided early on, and this is a lesson learned from our previous transaction, that the Hawaiian Airlines brand will remain, not only in name, but also in the distinctive branding that appears on the Hawaiian airplanes at airports and other locations, and in the experience enjoyed by Hawaiian Airlines passengers, um, partners, employees, and the communities it serves. I just want to underscore this because this is a departure from what the industry does. Industries usually have one airline under one single operating platform. Um, the one biggest question I have is, Ben, how are you gonna do a dual brand under a single platform? And I just say, there is no other choice. Uh, we will figure it out because we need to respect the culture and the legacy that's been created here for over 94 years. So looking ahead, there are review and approval processes we must go through, so nothing changes right away. And there is much we still need to learn and think through about what the combination will look like in the future. But there are some things we know today. So first, we look forward to learning from the employees of Hawaiian Airlines and from the people across Hawaii 
about how best to be the good stewards of the Hawaiian Airlines brand. Second, we expect to remain one of Hawaii's top employers, maintaining and growing the 5,800 union-represented positions in the state over time. At Alaska, 86% of the 24,000 employees are union-represented, the majority by the same unions that also represent Hawaiian Airline employees, and we will work together with them as this process moves forward. And as Honolulu becomes our second largest hub in the Alaska system, we will need strong local operations presence and local leadership here to support it. Third, we will work to create even more opportunities for career advancement and expand access to workforce development programs for Hawaii residents through our combined platform. Fourth, we will maintain a neighbor island service so that these air-dependent communities will continue to be served, similar to our commitment to remote communities in the state of Alaska. Fifth, we will continue to invest in Hawaii communities, combining and expanding the contribution of our airlines and working with local leaders to support a vibrant future for Hawaii. And finally, we will align both airlines' strong commitment to environmental stewardship by incorporating Hawaiian Airlines into Alaska's aggressive five-part plan to net zero carbon emissions by 2040. In closing, I'll say together, we will be stronger, better able to compete, to maintain and grow jobs, to build careers, and to invest in a sustainable future for our airlines and the communities we serve. As companies that proudly reflect the culture, geography, and the spirit of our home states, places that are uniquely reliant on air travel, Alaska Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines go together naturally and strategically. We share a commitment to service and excellence, a commitment we express in the way we care for our guests, each other, and in our support for our communities. I know I speak for all of us at Alaska when I say I'm optimistic about the future for our combined airlines, and I'm excited about what we can create together in the years to come. Mahalo. You know, you, you heard Minakuchi talking about preserving the branding of the individual airlines under a single platform. That is unusual in a case like this. And as he said, it's very different from 2016 when Alaska Airlines bought Virgin America and just absorbed it, didn't, uh, didn't keep the brand, didn't preserve that brand. Uh, that idea of maintaining the Hawaiian brand, also something Hawaiian CEO Peter Ingram talked about. He spoke about plans for the future, but he also had a lot to say about the legacy of the past. Just last month, Hawaiian celebrated our 94th anniversary. On November 11th, 1929, our visionary founder, Stan Kennedy, revolutionized the way we travel and do commerce across these islands by introducing commercial flights in Hawaii and bringing us closer together. Serving Hawaii has remained core to who we are as we've expanded our business to provide Kamaaina access to destinations across North America, Asia, in the Pacific, and to introduce our culture and beautiful islands to the world. Today, our more than 7,000 employees are proud ambassadors of this special place, and we all share a deep kuleana to care for our guests and the communities we serve. This singular mission, to be Hawaii's airline, is very unique in our industry, except for one carrier that shares many similarities. Hawaiian and Alaska have been able to maintain our independence thanks to several distinguishing characteristics. We share deep roots 
as hometown carriers dedicated to serving small, geographically dispersed communities that are far removed from the continental United States. To do this at scale requires a deep understanding of and commitment to our community's needs, something that can't be replicated by large network carriers. Another shared quality is a focus on what is most important to us, people. It is no surprise that both Hawaiian and Alaska are consistently among the highest rated airlines in guest satisfaction. Every single one of our thousands of employees understands fundamentally that we are here to serve people. This unwavering respect for the communities we serve is illustrated by the people on the tails of our planes, another distinct characteristic we share. And they're not just any people. They represent people from our home states and their welcoming hospitality. As Ben said a few minutes ago, the decision for the two brands to coexist wasn't difficult because they're already aligned on the most important responsibility of our respective businesses. Our airlines are part of the fabric of the communities where we're based. We employ many thousands of people with rewarding careers. We provide cargo service to move goods between our communities across great distances. We support local nonprofits that advance the interests and well-being of our communities. And we partner with local suppliers supporting small businesses and healthy local economies. Unlike airlines that operate in much larger metropolitan areas, we have an outsized influence in our home states, and we take this responsibility very seriously. I mentioned earlier that our companies place tremendous value on people, the people we serve, as well as our own colleagues and teammates. It was important to us at Hawaiian to ensure that Alaska will maintain and grow union jobs in Hawaii, retain flight crew bases and operations in Hawaii, with Honolulu becoming a strategic hub for the combined company. Both Hawaiian and Alaska seek to create more meaningful jobs and new opportunities for our employees to grow and develop their careers. For longtime customers and Hawaiian Miles members, this combination will bring significant benefits. In addition to more choice of destinations and products, members will enjoy enhanced benefits as part of a combined loyalty program. This is the biggest announcement in Hawaiian's history, and that's saying a lot for a 94-year-old company. Our shared similarities, our people, and our values run deep, and that is what will ensure a prosperous future for both brands. Working together, we foresee growth and opportunity for the people we care most about, our passengers, our employees, and the communities we serve. Mahalo. A lot of talk there about preserving union jobs, not so much about non-union jobs. Uh, <clears throat> active Monday, certainly, for Hawaiian Airlines stock, by the way, closed at $4.86 at Friday. At the open, it shot up to around $14 and pretty much stayed there uh, all day. Um, and that's, uh, that's about where it closed. Alaska Air's stock is down about 15% from Friday's close. 
both of those are usual in cases like this. The companies that are being acquired will see at least part of that premium immediately factored into the stock price, while the acquiring company has more question marks, whether that's the financing of debt that's being taken on as part of the deal to valuation of different pieces of this. And again, it's early in the process. The shareholders of Hawaiian need to approve the deal, and more importantly, uh, so do regulators. And that may actually be the bigger challenge. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens uh, to Hawaiian Air's vision. I know they had plans to expand to Europe. You know, maybe that gets pulled back, or how does that fit in with Alaska's plan? Well, and if you look at it as a combined uh, company, it is a much bigger company. I mean, again, four airlines dominate the United States, have 75% of the the airline seats, and number five is Alaska. And if you envision Hawaii as part of, Hawaiian as part of Alaska, that's a broader, the routes work together in a complementary way. A question that regulators are going to look at is what does this do to competition? Um, and that's an antitrust questions as well. Yeah, and there's been lots of discussion about, you know, what affected Southwest coming into the market, you know, have on Hawaiian. It cut its fares, you know, and, and we'll have to see how that kind of plays out. Mm-hmm. It's true. And you have, uh, you know, you have United uh, here as well as a substantial presence uh, just and what how that works out, not just with these two companies, but within the airline industry itself. And regulators previously have uh, Justice Department last year uh, sued to prevent a partnership between American Airlines, JetBlue in New York and Boston. Um, there's still a case going on. Uh, the government's suing to stop JetBlue from buying Spirit Airlines. Closing arguments in that case actually are coming soon. So that question of regulation within the airline industry, very much part of the story as well. Yeah, and it's just been interesting to watch, you know, because obviously we've been all waiting for the um, visitor numbers to uh, go up from Japan, mm, you mm-hmm. know, and that's taken a lot longer. You know, Hawaiian has done a lot to strengthen its position throughout Asia. Um, and, but, yeah, this could be the, the infusion that it needs, you know, to ride it through in the future. Definitely something to be uh, watching. And they say a year to 18 months to close this, a lot can happen along the way. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill. You bet. We have been talking to HPR's Bill Dorman about the news of a sale between Alaska and Hawaiian Airlines. We'll have more on the merger coming up on our Reality Check. Reality Check today. Honolulu Civil Beats Marcel Henre joins us with uh, more reaction to this sale. Hey, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? Good. So, yeah, this certainly sent, uh, uh, you know, ripples <laughs> uh, throughout the community yesterday when this came down. I got my little email as a, as a member of a Hawaiian Air, uh, you know, uh, freaking flyer. But, yeah, it, right. it's surprising news. This was a shock that sent shockwaves, I'm sure, across the island. I mean, I was up in Laie, and I had to get down uh, back into town for uh, this, uh, you know, this presentation that they had down at Cavallo Basin in the afternoon. I can tell you the, you know, the atmosphere there 
um, you know, there's press, uh, myself and a bunch of other people with a lot of questions uh, to be sure. But they also had, you know, company representatives uh, from from both Alaska, Alaska and Hawaiian. Uh, you know, as you saw in some of those sound or you heard in some of those sound bites, right, uh, they would they would make statements and there's a lot of forceful applause afterwards. So uh, this was kept super tight lipped. But once they were ready to go forward with this, I mean, they, you know, the blitz was on, so to speak. And your story talks about these secret negotiations. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a chance actually to, to sit down with both uh, Peter Ingram and uh, Ben Minicucci, who's the CEO over at Alaska, um, after that whole ceremony. And I asked them a little bit about this. I mean, one thing that didn't seem to get uh, brought up uh, in the immediate announcement was how did this come about and, and why did it come about? And it turns out, you know, based on what they're saying initially from, from all of this, is that this started um, on Alaska's side of, of the situation. They were working on their five-year strategic plan, which uh, is looking at a lot of growth. And what Minicucci told me was, is that they were, you know, they were very, uh, you know, positive and bullish on their, their company. They said they, they foresaw a lot of what they called organic growth, which is basically like the growth within from the company itself. But then they also started to look at ways for, quote unquote, inorganic growth which basically means ways to grow the company without just, you know, the, the means of the operations of the company itself, ways to, you know, um, mergers and, and, and things like, like these moves like we're, we're seeing. And so they started way back at the, the beginning of the year um, looking at various ways for this type of inorganic growth, and they quickly honed in on Hawaiian for a lot of the similarities on these operations from these two states that are not part of the continental U.S. and the way they're you know, their flight operations work, and they just kept delving deeper and deeper with their due diligence uh, to the point where the, the board uh, at Alaska was ready uh, with, a, you know, they, they set a price. They had outside advisors uh, to, to let them know what they thought, and they, they said, yeah, I think this is worth purchasing at such and such a price. And several months ago, as it was described, uh, Minakuchi said he went to Ingram with this offer. And Ingram, on his end, basically said that it was too strong and too serious. You know, we had to take it seriously uh, for the, the shareholders and for the stakeholders in the industry. So that's basically how they're, they're saying this went down. I asked Ingram, you know, is, this, uh, is, is Hawaiian responding to any sort of distress or other sort of, you know, market factors or, or service factors when you look at, uh, you know, the, the bumpy ride of the last several years in the industry? Um, and so far, he's saying no. It's you know, it is it was based on um, you know the, the offer itself. They said they were in good shape themselves, but this was an even better way uh, to position Hawaiian. You know, and that, that being said, I'm sure though you know it, it's a it, it's going to be difficult. Uh, they also you know acknowledge that it's, gonna, it's this is an emotional day when you're talking about Hawaiian Airlines, which has been around for 94 years, uh, to be acquired by Alaska. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while to process that, and, and uh, uh, you know, everybody's got a Hawaiian Air story, and, and, you know, how does this work with Alaska coming coming into the picture like this? But, yeah, it would be interesting to watch. But thank you so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Captain. Well, that was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org.
seems that we're hearing more appeals for help in locating missing Kapuna across our state. In many of these cases, our seniors are in need of medical care. Some have wandered off because of problems with dementia or Alzheimer's. Today, HBR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to talk about this growing problem and how we might care for our Kapuna. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, you know, I think there was just a case, uh, was it on Kauai? Um, uh, another Kapuna wandered off and they're, you know, asking for help. And they keep disappearing, too. I mostly focused in on Oahu because there's been a lot of um, missing Kapuna with dementia. And we already know that Hawaii has this growing aging population. And that may come with medical issues that Kapuna face, such as dementia, which can be costly and worry and burden some families. And like you said, we are seeing more reports of seniors that are ages 70s, 80s, missing with dementia. And the most recent case was in Eva Beach. His name was Juan Rodriguez. He just went missing in November and he wandered away from his home. I also spoke with the family of William Burr who has been missing since October, the Mililani resident, and his family is still looking for him. And the brother Joseph Burr flew from Ohio to look for his brother for five days straight, but no luck, but the family told me that they haven't lost hope. He said he was shocked that Hawaii didn't even have this silver alert program. I don't feel that there are enough resources dedicated to searching for senior citizens, elderly people that are suffering the effects of dementia, uh, Alzheimer, or other senior citizen-type ailments and diseases. Uh, I was very disappointed when I arrived in Hawaii to find there was no silver alert and to find that in uh, the family's opinion, uh, HPD was reviewing us as a typical missing person. There was no extra effort or initiative put on it due to the fact that uh, my brother was in his late 70s approaching 80 and uh, that's when it came to light that there is no uh, silver missing person type program on the Hawaiian Islands. Very disappointing. So when you think of silver alert program, think of it as Amber Alert, which is used to locate missing children or abducted children, but the Silver Alert program works just like that, only it's more immediate. It will broadcast, it will go off to social medias um, and whatnot, and this would alert, alert, alert the folks of Hawaii that there's missing kapuna out there. And um, given some of the reports, some of the seniors have been missing for months. Like, for example, the Chamorro resident in Kapolei um, has been missing since May. And advocates are pushing for a bill that would create the Silver Alert program. The last time the bill was introduced was in 2020, but it failed to gain traction. Um, the Kapuna Caucus actually was looking to introduce this bill in a package, but on Friday when they met, it didn't make the top priorities, but the bill actually is going to be introduced by Senator Sharon Morawaki. Um, she's going to be championing this bill unless another legislature is going to pick it up. Um, also, um, what's going to be on the table for this coming legislative session is there's going to be a bill that would require dementia training for all county police departments. Um, but Joe Burr told me he's an Ohio resident. Ohio actually has a silver alert program. They do have a silver alert program. They use broadcast medium. They use television news. They use the newspapers, they use the internet system, and uh, local police uh, put out missing senior alerts on uh, through uh, different types of media, such as Facebook, such as Instagram. And so there is really a flood of information when there's a missing senior. We actually have electronic signs over the interstate system, and the individual's license plate, vehicle color, 
and last known location at times is flashed across the interstate. So there's a tremendous amount of visibility in an effort to locate senior citizens. So it's going to really depend on the upcoming legislative session when the bill is introduced. Um, last session, it didn't, didn't really come into fruition. It was opposed by the um, Attorney General's office. It was opposed by the Honolulu Police Department, who said that they had the resources. Actually, HPD emailed me last week saying that they had a 99% recovery rate, but folks like Joe Burr actually doesn't really, he, he questions the 99% recovery rate, given the fact that we still have missing Kupuna that goes back to at least May. Um, I mean, they do have crime stoppers, and we do hear a lot of, we see that on TV, and, and a lot of the families, you know, do go out and do search parties. But, uh, yeah, I mean, folks, you know, may kind of question, well, is this enough? And for the Silver Alert program, in other states like California, it was implemented by law, um, and it was created under the Department of Transportation Services. But what advocates are pushing for in this bill for the Silver Alert program is that they're hoping to maybe get the, um, I think it's this new agency, Department of Law Enforcement, to kind of house the program if it becomes law this coming legislative session. Um, but for Joe's brother, I mean, this is the first time he's wandered away, but folks I've spoken to, it can happen more than once. And some advocates are pushing for more education and awareness on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementia. Um, I also spoke with Caroline Caddy uh, Rao. She's the executive director of the State Office on Aging. She said people with dementia mostly go missing from their own homes as opposed to a care home. That's why we really promote early detection so that we can support families and the caregivers to make sure that one, the home is a safe environment for the older adult and that maybe they could be linked up with the Alzheimer's Association or other providers that could help to ensure that they, one, that they understand the disease, that they know how to address certain behaviors that come through the different stages of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, and how to support the families. And for those seeking their love for a, a home for their loved ones, that can be expensive. I also spoke with John McDermott, the state's long-term care ombudsman, and he said that homes are actually negotiable. So caregivers, they are a business, and they're going to charge as much as they can charge. And so I would say if you can find a care home for four or $5,000 a month, that's probably a pretty good price. But they, they can go as high as 10000 15000 a month. So you, you really have to be able to negotiate. The other thing is that, of course, location, location, location with real estate, the closer in town, generally the more expensive. If you want a private room, more expensive. If you want your own bathroom, more expensive. And all of those things don't indicate necessarily that you're going to get better care. And so... Because we have this um, rapidly growing aging population, we do know that 29,000 um, people are living with Alzheimer's disease in Hawaii, and nearly 7% have some cognitive decline or other dementia. So um, even though both are culprits of memory loss, dementia is the one that causes people to wander from their homes. Yeah, and we've just uh, come off of um, uh, Alzheimer's month, too, so you know, lots of people talking about this to raise everyone's awareness. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio. You can look for her stories on this on hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort. In its upcoming 60th anniversary and in the decades to come, committed to helping preserve Oahu's land, ocean, and culture. Wishing everyone happy holidays. Kahalaresort.com. Today on The Daily. In the weeks since Hamas carried out a devastating terror attack inside of Israel, my colleague, Ronan Bergman, has been investigating what kind of warnings Israel missed beforehand. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply with a mission to provide fresh water to the people of Oahu, committed to conserving and protecting Oahu's water resources since 1929. Boardofwatersupply.com. We've been talking about missing Kapuna, but we also have missing Keiki. It is a parent's nightmare to have to report a missing child, but sometimes the cases involve a parental kidnapping. The State Attorney General's office says these cases don't often get a lot of attention, but it is around the holidays that these parental abductions often happen. We recently had Deputy AG Amanda Leonard in our studio. She was joined by a Hawaii mom who founded the Missing Child Center here in the state. It was back in the 90s that Sharon Young's three children were abducted by their father and taken to Mexico. She penned that story in a new book just out this month to help families who are struggling with custody issues. Here's Sharon. If you are having difficulty in your relationship with your partner, whether it's you know married or not, and you think that your child may be abducted, if, if your partner has threatened that, then you really should be reaching out to the Missing Child Center Hawaii for help or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to prepare yourself because time is of the essence when a child is abducted and Hawaii because it's so isolated, it makes it so much harder. We actually are a jumping off point for a lot of families that may have mixed country relationships. I was married to a Mexican and he ended up abducting our children to Mexico. So this is something that often happens in Hawaii as well. So you should prepare yourself as best you can. Out of your experience, you decided to take action and you helped to establish this center because there was just a gap. Because we had nothing here in Hawaii. There was no nothing to help recover children at all. The police, you know, I know they're trying to do their best. They did a terrible job. I mean, it should have been turned over to the FBI almost immediately because there was credible witnesses that saw them in San Francisco the next day, and they didn't do it. They wanted to do it their way. So now, thank goodness, Amanda, the coordinator for the Missing Child Center, is building a great relationship with the police department, and that will save on time in recovery. And Amanda, you handle so many cases, you know, that deal with missing children, but custodial cases, that's something that we don't really hear a lot about. Right. The custodial cases, or as they're known as parental abductions or kidnappings or custodial interference, those are the cases that don't 
make headlines. Uh, but those are the cases that are ha happening quite frequently in our state, uh, in all four counties. Uh, we do handle uh, parental abductions uh, on a regular basis. Uh, they're extremely complex, uh, legally and emotionally. And the main thing is that the parents are reporting it to the police and then also reaching out to our office, the AG's office, to make sure that we are able to assist the police to locate the children and start coordinating and leveraging all resources possible. And because, as Sharon mentioned, it can be tricky because you're talking different countries sometimes and the laws aren't so easy to navigate. Right. They're not easy to navigate. It is definitely wise to have an attorney if possible. Uh, multiple things are happening. So, you know, you can report it to the police to make that initial complaint, uh, which may be referred uh, to an investigation. But you also need to be enforcing your custodial rights in family court on the civil side. So it's a both of a civil and, and a criminal matter. On the civil side, you're going to be filing motions to enforce your rights in court and, and trying to seek those orders out. And then on the criminal side, uh, the police may create an investigation. And whether the, ch the child leaves the state or, or the country, there will be an investigation into that. And we at Missing Child Center, we have our resources in the other states. And then we also um, you know, have a relationship with the State Department who handles those international parental abductions. So there are things in place. It must be reported to law enforcement uh, as soon as possible, though. And then your background is in family law. What does it mean to you when you recover a child that's been missing for some time? Well, the reason I went to law school was to do something like this. I went to law school to protect children and be in a position where I could um, really help people that are struggling through that legal process. I started off, uh, as you mentioned, as, as a family law attorney, doing divorce cases, custody cases, adoptions, guardianships, restraining orders. And so that's my background. So coming to Missing Child Center, parental abductions, that's actually my wheelhouse. So I'm very familiar with the process. I actually had clients when I was in private practice. I had clients who've had their children abducted by the other parent. And you know what we see, what I saw as an attorney in private practice, as I, what I see now is that these incidents will often occur before, during, or after a uh, family court matter, whether it's a divorce or you know a paternity case, unmarried parents. It will often be a domestic violence situation, where that's the ultimate revenge, uh, is to take somebody's children away and try to conceal them and try to break that relationship between the child and the parent. It's an egregious crime. And then Sharon, I mean, this happened to you. You know, you lost your two daughters and three? your son. Yeah, yeah, your, your three two kids. Your two daughters and your son. You were able to get your son back, though. Yes, because um, his father was extremely cruel to him, beating him up, almost killing him. And my son tried four times to get away. The fourth time, he succeeded because he was able to reach me. I had moved. I stayed in the same place for as long as I could. But then I moved, and then my telephone number changed. So the first time he tried to call, you know, we couldn't keep this, the telephone number back then. And so he was lost. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do. But 
eventually his father thought he could manipulate me into signing over the custodial rights to my children to him and he had to use the kids to do that, to talk to me, to cajole me. And when I figured out what, what he was trying to do, I said, of course not, and he cut me off from them. But my son uh, saved my phone number and called from the street, you know, after school to try to get help from me. How old was he at the time? He was 13. The first time he tried to escape, I think he was 11 or 12. He was abducted when he was 11. My ex had all my kids work on a farm. He was hiding them, but he had them working on a farm. They weren't in school. And so at one point, he abandoned my son on the farm, and he said, I may never come back for you. And so the farmer let my son come into Mexico City with them one time, and he tried to call me. That was the first time he tried to call. Right. But he, he managed to get out, so you were reunited with him. But your daughters, you, you're not able, even though you've reached out, Numerous you're not able times. to establish a relationship Actually, with for a period of time, I would say in 2011 to 2013 or so, I had some contact with both of them. They were emailing me, but it was very tentative. And the thing was that I found out my ex-husband came back into the United States because the state of Hawaii dismissed the four felony warrants against him, but they didn't tell me. And then because of that, I tried to, you know, get the missing child center involved with serving him with the felony warrants and they'd been dismissed. So because of that, I ended up taking my ex-husband back to court for back child support and I had to move it to Virginia because Hawaii's child support enforcement agency is abysmal. You know, many years have passed. Your, your son's in his 40s now, but you have put together a book with tips for parents, you know, if they find themselves in this situation, it, it helps to create a re- roadmap for what to do. My first instinct for doing the book, which took 15 years, was to reach out to my daughters to tell them my side of the story because they haven't been told much truth anyway. But then I decided, you know, if I can't reach them, maybe I can help some other parents. And so that's why I put that in the back of the book, you know, resources and tips on things that they can do. One thing that I I know maybe it's not a problem for people nowadays to take pictures of their kids, but you can't use photographs from schools and you should have pictures of your children as they grow older, not only of your children, but yourself and and the, the children's other parent. Because if they're abducted, the NECMEC can age enhance the pictures to help see if they can locate these children at some point. So that's good to know, but don't use school pictures. Keep a database of your pictures of your kids. Right, and everybody's got cell phones now, yeah. so hopefully that's a lot easier. And Amanda, you know, what can you tell us about the numbers of cases uh, that come through you know, your office? Well, generally speaking, annually, Missing Child Center Hawaii will assist in the recovery of approximately 300 children statewide. So we have a very high case volume. Now, these are there's different types of cases. We handle lost children, family abductions, stranger abductions, and also endangered runaways, which is our biggest uh, caseload. 
uh, they have the highest numbers. So most of the time we are focused on on those cases. Um, when people think of kidnappings, I think they think of a stranger abduction. I don't think that they may be thinking of a parental abduction. But we, we respond to all of those incidents and assist the police in any way we can and also bring in our federal partners to assist as well. Everybody plays a role. And then, you know, Sharon, I know you had mentioned that when you went to the police, they were of the mind that, you know, your your child's not in any danger, that a, a parent wouldn't hurt their children. And we sadly know that that is not the case. That is not the case. And in fact, in most cases, 85% of the cases, and this is National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, say those parents are emotionally unstable and a child with an emotionally unstable parent is in great danger. A lot of times they'll murder their children, they'll maim their children. The main reason they abduct their children is to get back at the left behind parent, to punish them because they know the best way to do it is to harm the children. Yeah, it's a it's a power thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I would like to add most Amber Alerts nationwide are activated for uh, familial or parental abductions. That means that the police are believe that the child may be seriously harmed or killed in the abduction by a parent. So if you look at those statistics, that should break the myth that all children who are abducted by a parent are safe, because that is absolutely not the case. And we have a number of incidents here in Hawaii um, to disprove that myth. And so, Sharon, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, you know, when you think that, you know, we're coming to the holidays and Christmas break is, you know, one of those times where abductions happen. Yeah, the most frequent time a child is abducted, whether by parent or stranger, is during Christmas vacation or summer vacation. My own kids were abducted during summer vacation. So it gives the other person more time to get away, especially if they have some custody rights and they're going to, you know, take them out of the country with no intention. One of the things that I would recommend is if you get married to someone from another country, do not make your child a dual citizen in that country because then it may be almost impossible to get them out. And then you're dealing with different country laws as well. And, you know, I married somebody from Mexico, and we had our children become dual citizens, and I was very sorry later on for that. Anything else that you want to say, Amanda, in closing well, thoughts? Sharon gives some excellent tips. Um, I do want to encourage parents to get uh, court orders to make sure that um, they have something in writing that is enforceable by law enforcement so that when they do make the call that they're able to present that and explain, I have full custody or I have you know this schedule um, to make sure that they are more uh, you know protected in that regard. Um, you know, that's that the onus is on them to, to pursue that. In, in the family courts and, and, you know, making sure that they're not in a position that they are more vulnerable than, than they would be. So that mm-hmm. happened to me. I got divorced in Texas. I didn't know that when I moved back to Hawaii, which is where I'm from, that I had to register my divorce decree here. When I found that out, the police said, well, we can't help you unless you have your divorce registered in our state. So that took time, too. And Mm -hmm. time is of the essence. So I would recommend if people have moved here and they got divorced in another state, get your order registered in this state because 
The police can't help you. How do you register? How do you do that? You can hire an attorney who who can register uh, the orders from another jurisdiction. I used wow. to do that. Um, or there's a way to, to also do it yourself um, through the family court. But that is an excellent tip is register your court orders so that if anything were to happen, that you are prepared and that you can seek uh, law enforcement's assistance. That was Deputy Attorney General Amanda Leonard and Sharon Young talking about custodial cases of missing children. Young has written a book about her experience, which uh, led her to found the Missing Child Center Hawaii. We'll have links to find out more at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. On the next Fresh Air, Dave Davies, who has contributed great interviews to our show for many years. He decided earlier this year he wanted to cut back. Terry will talk with Dave about his broadcasting and newspaper career, playing clips of his interviews, and we'll hear about his many adventures, including a stint driving a taxi. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Leeward Theater, presenting A Robert Casimiro Christmas, an evening of hula, melee, and holiday classics, December 9th and 10th. Tickets at leeward.hawaii.edu slash leewardtheater. This weekend's monthly community day at Makua Valley took on new meaning with news that the military declared it would no longer conduct any more live training training exercises now or in the future. Members of the group Malama Makua that pushed back against the use of this area could now celebrate this latest success. The group gathered Friday in response to a filing in court last week by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and U.S. Army Secretary Christine Wormuth that, that said that it would not conduct any additional live training exercises at its Makua military reservation. The drills were actually halted 19 years ago. Malama Makua is hailing the decision as a step forward. Members spoke of the impact that this decision has on their efforts to protect native species and the continued cleanup of the valley. We hear from a couple of members. We start with Vince Dodge, whose father, Fred, was one of the early members of Malama Makua. This is an important day. You know, we have this announcement from the United States Army, from the Secretary of, I guess, the Army, that they will not now or in the future 
Youth's Makua Valley for Life fire training. And that's pretty big news. That's, uh, that's cause for celebration. It's a step in the cleanup and return of this valley, which the Army promised to do when they occupied it in, in full in 1942, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the declaration of martial law and the occupation of lands all across the Pai Island. So, you know, I want to read what Auntie Lynette wrote. We welcome the Army's good news, particularly the permanent ending of live fire training in Makua Valley. The Valley has suffered enough. We look forward to the evolution of military thinking that training to kill is justified. We acknowledge that such training can never contribute to peaceful outcomes, not in the Valley, in Hawaii, or in the world, because the intent is to do harm. We recommend instead diplomacy and the practice of aloha aku aloha mai, which sees an equitable peace as a logical outcome. So this is an important step. There is much, much, much work to be done. And Sparky Rodriguez is another longtime member. He explains how initially the community sought help from the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, which zeroed in on the threat to native species in the valley, including the lowly native snails, the Kahuli. It's worth noting, as this year was proclaimed as Year of the Kahuli. Here's Rodriguez. And in the valley, there's over 40 endangered species, which incorporates and includes the critical habitat for them. So over the years, the fires, the training, and during that time, 10-year period, there were 250 fires in the valley. So the military had no fire plan. The, even when the Marine Corps came and lobbed a mortar outside the fire brick road that really started our path, the fire started burning the center ridge, and that entire section of the valley was black. And all the historic sites were blackened, all the endangered species was wiped out, completely wiped out from the fire. Because there was like seven years of fuel load that was built up. And that created so much heat. When I went onto Ukanipo, the Heiau stone was the color of Imu. It was all rainbow colored because it was so hot. So that's what got us to the point where, well, there's cultural sites. And the army said, no, there's nothing. The fires reveal the cultural sites. And with that, the Marine fire is the one initial letter that went out and said, we're going to be taking you to court. And the fire is what got that foot in the door. 9-11 happened. We came up with the agreement. And it was for them to go back to training for two years. But it also guaranteed the EIS to be completed a year or two after their return. We still have not received a completed EIS. And during that agreement, we also got funding so that David Henke and our attorney from Earth Justice could go out and get peer review, hire experts to challenge the findings of the experts the Army hired. And what happened is that they were able to come up with things that were missed or conclusions that was erroneous. And all of the findings from the peer review uh, was submitted to the federal court. So with that, I believe that helped us in the journey and the stopping of the live fire training, but also the inaction of the military in completing the EIS. And um, 
our success today. It was part of all of their effort. And Rodrigue says as next year marks two decades since the last live fire training took place in the valley, Malama Makua will work to ensure the cleanup continues. He says he looks forward to the day he hears the song of the Kahuli. As the saying goes, when the forest is healthy, the Kahuli will sing. that does it for us today. Tomorrow we learn about a children's theater group on Molokai. Do you have a story to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Look for the conversation uh, segments on our website or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.